Amen. Church, you can go and have a seat. You know, one of the unique things about our God is that he, one of the ways that he wants to be worshipped, that he calls us to worship him, is through things like that last song. That last song is a lament. We're crying out to God our, our need for him. Right? Whereas when we can be burdened by other people's needs, right? They can be too much, sometimes even overwhelming to us. Our God is not like that. He's infinite. So he's honored and glorified when we ask of him because he is more than abundant to meet those needs. So one of the things that we are going to be working into our service right now, right before the sermon, is a time of prayer uh, that we have each week. I'm going to pray for some of the needs in the church, some of the needs uh, for the church more broadly, and some of the needs for our community And then close that by praying the Lord's Prayer together. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray together this morning, church. Lord, we thank you so much that we get to come before you as a father, a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children, who does not despise our neediness, but tells us that if we have need, we should come before the throne of grace and ask for mercy, ask for grace. And so we are here to do that now, Lord. First of all, I want to pray for those of our little family here who cannot be here today. I know there are many, many people sick, fighting through that, some for a long time. I pray that you would show grace and mercy on them and whatever is not allowing them to be here today. I pray that you would resolve it so they can be back with us soon. We miss them. We are less for their absence. And so we pray that you would care for them, though, in the meantime, and bring them back to us. Lord, we want to pray for Xavier Farah as he has surgery coming up this Friday. He's six years old, and he's got some uh, tonsils and adenoids and things that need to come out, Lord. So I just pray for grace for him, mercy for him as he walks through this, for his parents, that you would help them to care for him well through it, and ultimately that, that this surgery would be helpful to him and to his health. Lord, we also want to lift up our sister, Babette Hunt, who has been recovering for, from a concussion for several weeks now, and it's been very slow, and she can't be with us because... The lights and the sound are, are too harsh on her where she's at right now. And we just pray for, for her recovery. We pray that you give doctors wisdom. We pray that you'd comfort her. Um, things have been so uncomfortable for her for a long time, and she hasn't been able to, to see people and have the fellowship she normally would. So I just pray that you would sustain her during the midst of this time. And we pray that you'd bring her out of it and show mercy in that way very, very soon. Lord, for our church, I also just want to pray for some of the processes we're in the midst of. Bringing on more members, uh, Lord, I pray that you give both the church and the people who are considering that wisdom, uh, Lord, that this is the family for them, that you would bring that about. Uh, We rejoice for for the way that you have done that so far in the life of our church, and we look forward to your continued help with that. And Also, as our um, members are working through the process of of elders and deacons, Lord, we just pray for wisdom uh, as we work through that as well. We know that you're the one who equips these people and raises them up, and uh, we want to recognize what you are doing, uh, and we want to be wise. And so, Lord, we just pray for your help and, and wisdom throughout that whole process, and ultimately that you provide us what we need to, to move beyond the church plant stage into being a full church, a, a plurality of elders and, and deacons to help with the labor here. And so um, we just ask for your help with that. Lord, more broadly, we want to thank you for Grace Reform Network, this uh, association of churches that we have been able to be a part of starting. There's, there's nine of us so far. Um, and Lord, we just want to pray in these early stages that you would just give a lot of wisdom and guidance. Um, right now, there's particular needs for uh, a venue for our next annual gathering that's coming up in June. So we pray that you provide for that. 
and also uh, wisdom as we have a lot of revising and, and finalizing to do on our bylaws um, with the, the member churches and that stuff is tedious, uh, but it's important. And so pray that you give us wisdom and insight to do that and uh, that you would ultimately uh, cause this association to really strengthen uh, the churches and serve the gospel going forward. Lastly, Lord, we pray for this community that you have placed us in here in Columbia and, and the surrounding communities. Lord, we pray uh, that you would convict our neighbors here of their sin. Lord, we pray that you would dissatisfy them with their idols, that you would um, make them desperate for what can only be found in Jesus Christ. Make our church, both when we are gathered and when we are scattered into our various vocations and, and locations, faithful witnesses to your law and your gospel. But Lord, ultimately we know that, that you are the one that has to breathe life. You have to take out hearts of stone and give hearts of flesh. You have to give the eyes of faith to see and to respond to that gospel. So we pray that you would do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. And we want to close by praying together the way that Jesus himself taught us. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer together now, church, in closing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, church, with that, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 27 to 31 today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31. If you guys remember, right before this, Jesus is just... Uh, raised a little girl from the dead. Um, and as you might suspect, this has created quite a little bit of hubbub. People don't usually rise from the dead. So it's, uh, everybody's a little bit uh, awash with the excitement of all of this. And Jesus is, is leaving the house where he did this, and that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. So this is the word of the Lord. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. And we entered the house. The blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the particular passage that you have brought us in today. We know that we need it. Uh, we know that you've given it to us for, uh, to reveal yourself and to work in us. And so we pray that you would do that by your spirit, that your spirit would be with my words, that he would make them yours, and that he would be with our ears and our hearts, that they would be receptive, uh, Lord, and that you would work um, by your word in us exactly the way that each needs and we pray this in all confidence because you've promised that your word does not return void. It always accomplishes exactly what you intend. So we entrust this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So anybody here suffer from blindness? Didn't, I didn't think so, judging by the eye contact and everything. I think, you know, this is not something any of us 
personally struggle with. Right? And on the surface, this particular work of Jesus and his ministry might seem a little bit distant to us. Maybe like the man with leprosy. Right? That's something that's pretty foreign in our current context, especially understanding the cultural dynamics. But I'd argue that of all these works of power that we've seen Jesus doing for these last two, two chapters, right? Healing all different sorts of diseases, raising the dead, casting out demons, controlling storms, all of these different things. I think this one maybe tracks the closest with us, actually. The one that we, more than any other, can perhaps say, me too. But to see that, we've got to dig a little bit deeper into it, right? On the top level of things, we're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah that comes to give sight. But then, as we go a little bit deeper, we're going to see that there is a blindness that all of us share, right? That blindness is not unique to these two men, to the small population who cannot see. There is a blindness that every person in the human race has. And we're going to see Two different kinds of sight. For those of you who are Christians here this morning, the one sight that you have already been given, but also another sort of sight that is our blessed and great hope to come. So that's what we're going to see. Let's get into it, right? First, let's check out the, the Messiah who gives sight, right? Jesus healing the blind, right? He's been healing a whole bunch of people. He's been doing all these acts of power, demonstrating his authority over all things, from the cells in your body, to storms, to death itself, and the demonic powers. It's been just display after display after display of the total authority of Jesus Christ. But this particular healing has uh, a little bit of a unique fingerprint. It does say that absolutely, but it says more. Particularly, it identifies him as the Messiah. In Isaiah 35, this is a prophecy of the Messiah who is to come. Opening the eyes of the blind is something that is associated specifically with the Messiah who is to come. This is one of the things that they were to look for in this one who is coming. Isaiah 35, verses 2 through 6 say this. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So the first little sign that's given there in verse 5 is that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, along with other things. But one thing that's interesting, on top of considering this, not only is it prophesied, but if you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of miraculous stuff that happens in the Old Testament, right? Whether it's through, its, through his prophets or God intervening directly, all sorts of things happen. Rivers turn to blood. The dead are raised, right? Um, the sun stands still. All kinds of miraculous things in the Old Testament. But you know what we never see? The, blind, the eyes of the blind opened. You never see it in the Old Testament. You never see it until Jesus. And we're going to see a little bit later on in Matthew, Jesus himself holds this out as an identity marker. 
particularly for John the Baptist, who's in prison and kind of wrestling with some doubts and struggling a little bit. In Matthew eleven two through 5, we read this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them and says, Go, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus himself holds this up. He's like, hey, this is part of my calling card as the Messiah. This guy is going to bring sight to the blind. I'm doing it. I'm that guy. So again, revealing very, very clearly, especially if you're a Jew and you have the, the context of the Old Testament and the prophecies and everything, this would have been very clear what Jesus is pointing to here. But now we should get curious, right? And, and it's good to be curious about Scripture, about the Lord, right? And we might ask, why? Why is giving sight to the blind such a specific and, and significant messianic act, right? Why not pick just any other random act of power? Yeah, there's some other ones that go along with it, but why, why this one? Well, we've already seen through these last couple of chapters, that Jesus is often using these physical acts that he does to communicate greater spiritual realities. Think about how many times we've seen him touch unclean people and make them clean and him not become polluted, right? Communicating, yes, he's healing that person, and that's, you know, wonderful in its own place, right? But he's communicating deeper spiritual realities at the same time. And that is the case here as well. Because blindness is not restricted to a very tiny percentage of the population. Blindness is actually ubiquitous. It's something that every single one of us have experienced. Blindness is one of the ways that scriptures describes the way we are in our sin. It uses other things. It says we're dead. But blind is one of the ways that it describes us. Spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is the lack of ability to understand and rightly to respond to things as they truly are. It's the lack of ability to understand and rightly respond to things as they truly are. In a somewhat cruel irony, this blindness began with a pursuit of greater sight. Let's go back to Genesis 3. Pick up in verse 4. Now, this is where the serpent is in the midst of tempting Eve. And she's told him what the Lord told them, and, and the serpent answers back. And then this is what he says in verse 4. He says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat of the tree that the Lord prohibited. Then he goes on to say, For the Lord knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is just 
So wild. Satan convinced our first parents that they were blind when they could actually see. That time in the garden is when they actually saw things clearly. They They got to dwell in the presence of the Lord, and they knew what was right and wrong because he told them. He revealed it to them. Right? They were not lacking any kind of sight that they needed. And yet that was the lie. Right? That God is keeping you in the dark. Right? There's more out there to know. He's, he is keeping you down, keeping you uh, down by withholding this knowledge from you. Right? So you need it. Once you have this, you will be like him. And of course, it's an utter lie. Right? And we can tell from the response. They eat, and there's a sense in which their eyes are opened. But not in the way they thought, right? They don't become like God. It's the exact opposite. They actually lose their fellowship with God completely, the fellowship that they did have. Notice their response to to this eyes being opened. What do they do? They have to cover themselves. They have to cover themselves, right? Before this, they had known sin and evil because God had told it to them. They knew what it was. But now they had participated in it, right? Now they knew it experientially. They knew evil in a different way. But this was not knowledge that that added light. This is knowledge that darkened. Right? So now they know evil. They know sin. They know rebellion. Along with it, they know guilt and shame and death. And ever since then, we are all born with a blindness. With a blindness that does not see God rightly, that sees God in the way that the serpent paints him rather than as he truly is. And so we tend to, this blindness shows up in a variety of ways. Some people dismiss him as a fantasy. They reject him as one of of many They see him as distant and uninvolved and therefore not mattering to their actual lives. Some fear him as domineering and almost evil. Some would rather fashion him into their own likeness and image. This blindness can can show up in different ways, but it is all blindness still the same. The, The staunch atheist is blind, and so is the person who remakes Jesus in their image by just changing this much, right? The person who just tweaks the gospel a little bit. Paul captures this blindness um, very painfully well in Romans 1. Romans 1, I'm going to read a long passage from Romans 1 because I think it's important for us to just kind of hear this um, fleshed out the way that Paul does. Romans 1, 18 through verse 31. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a way to describe blindness, right? And by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the, cre- the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's a, it's a long passage, but it paints out the picture of what we're talking about so well. Right? This, this inversion that happens where what is evil is seen as good and what is good is seen as evil. Some of these, some of these phrases, right? By their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, become futile in their thinking. Hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And then that last verse really sums up this, this inversion, this blindness creates. That even though they know God's righteousness, that, that, that practicing these things, God says, you deserve to die if you practice these things, right? They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Right? This blindness makes us act irrationally. Like, when we act rationally, we do what is at least in our best interest, right? This blindness is described that you can, you can know what's not in your best interest, what's going to kill you, and you will still chase after it. That is the depth of this spiritual blindness. So church, spiritual blindness is this, this lack of ability to understand and rightly respond to things as they truly are. That's what Paul just painted out. But on top of that, it's also a blindness that thinks it sees. It has no idea it's blind, right? It thinks it's in the light of day, and it sees things perfectly. And that's part of what makes it so deadly and so dangerous, right? It's one thing to have a weakness, to have an infirmity, and then to work around it. But when you don't know you have it, and you keep acting like you don't, much worse things happen, and that's the nature of this blindness. It's not only a blindness, but it's a deceptive blindness, It's a blindness that thinks it sees. It's a darkness that thinks it's light. It's a foolishness that thinks it's wisdom. So, a Messiah who'd give sight to the blind was only needed by just a small fringe of the population who couldn't see. No, that's not the kind of Messiah we're talking about. Right? A Messiah who could give sight to the blind... This kind of blindness was needed by every single one of us. 
because we are fatally unable to rightly understand and respond to God. So with that in mind, let's come back to our passage. And as we do, we can see that, that this miracle, right? There, there's a miracle that happened before our passage even started. Before Jesus opens these men's eyes, he heals their spiritual blindness. There's not only two men, there's two kinds of blindness that Jesus deals with. He gives them spiritual sight before the narrative even picks up the story. And we can tell this by how they come to Jesus. Right? These men, more than, than any we've seen since Jesus began his ministry, his public ministry, they understand him, who he is, and respond to him rightly more than anybody else has. We've, we've seen some people who've done great. Like the centurion was commended for his great faith. Jesus said he had never seen faith like this before. But even in comparison to him, these men understood more deeply, or at least what we have in the account, they understood more deeply who Jesus actually is. First of all, as they're following along in the crowd, and they're, they're crying out over and over again, Son of David, have mercy on me. Right? Son of David is not just a nickname. It doesn't just mean that that is a messianic title. Right? This is what the Jews are looking for in the Messiah, is a son of David, somebody who's going to sit on this eternal throne that God promised David. Right? So when they are saying son of David, they are declaring him to be the Messiah. That's what they are saying. This, this is stuff that most of the other people who come to Jesus have not gotten there yet. They know he can do some stuff. They know that he's powerful. But they haven't fully wrapped their heads around this yet. These men, because of God's grace and mercy, they, they have heard about Jesus and what he's doing, and they see, right? God has removed the blindness so that they can see Jesus rightly. So they call him Son of David. The next, you think about this, this healing blindness as this messianic mark, part of this identity. When they come and, and Jesus talks to them, he says, do you believe that I am able to do this? Right? This is something that hasn't happened before. The healing of blind people. This is tied to the, the messianic promise. So he's saying, hey, you want me to do this messianic thing. Do you believe I can do this? You know, so, and they get, and they say, yes, Lord. So another affirmation that they are recognizing him and acknowledging him to be the Lord's Messiah, the Christ. And even in that answer, they don't say yes, rabbi. They don't say yes, teacher. They don't say yes, father. These are all titles that would have fit with Jesus, how Jesus was generally seen in the culture as a rabbi, a teacher. You wouldn't really call those people lords. There were other positions you would use that title for, but that's not really the rabbi role that they'd largely see Jesus filling. So when they're saying Lord, I think they're also using that in the divine sense here, right? They're acknowledging that he is not just some teacher. This is a teacher. This has a, a Lord is authority. It's a ruling title. And they use that in addressing him. All of these things point to the fact that they, more than anybody we've seen yet, have had their eyes open to who Jesus truly is. So these men didn't just receive their sight when they came to Jesus they received spiritual sight so they would come to Jesus, right? The Lord worked in their hearts by the Holy Spirit to let them recognize what was going on around Capernaum when they're hearing these stories and, and to recognize, hey, this isn't just some magician doing tricks. This isn't, no, this is, this is different. I know what this is. I remember reading Isaiah. This sounds like that guy. Like, the Lord gave them the eyes of faith to see this. We call this regeneration. Regeneration. This is the, 
when the Lord takes somebody who is spiritually dead and makes them alive. We cannot respond to the Lord in any sort of positive, favorable way. We cannot move towards him in faith until we are brought from death to life. Right? Similarly, dead people don't see anything. You can call a dead person blind. That's fair. They're not seeing anything with their eyes, right? So one of the things that happens when you go from death to life, you go from blindness to sight. Jesus actually connects these, these two things together when he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3. He tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, let's talking about this regeneration, coming back to life, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right? You have to have this new life to be able to see rightly. So we see before our passage even begins that Jesus has made these two blind men alive. He's given them spiritual sight. And because they have that spiritual sight, they come to Jesus by faith. Yes, you are able to do this. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple implications of this before we move on to the last, last little bit here. Um, first of all, this should be very, very helpful for us in terms of how we think about the world around us, right, and understanding them rightly. Uh, the world around us is, is blind, Right? It's, it's blind. So there, there's this inability to understand the Lord rightly and to respond to him rightly. And yet it's this blindness that thinks it sees. Right? Doesn't this sound like the world? Right? Completely convoluted distortions of truth. And yet this certitude that you have it right. Even in the most bizarre Stretches. So what does this mean for us? First of all, it means humility for us. Right? This means humility for us. Beloved, you did not come to Christ because you are wiser, because you are stronger, because you are more moral than those who are in blindness around us. That is not why you came. You came because your eyes were opened. Because you were blind, but now you see. So there's no room for arrogance in Christians, ever. If we boast in anything, we get to boast in the cross. That's it. All of our boasting is in the work of Christ, always and only. So self righteousness, arrogance, pride has to die, it needs to be mortified with the rest of our sin. And we'll never relate to the world the way that we are rightly called to from a place of prideful hubris towards them. Right? But then we also be mindful that we are in a blind world. Right? We are in a world where most people are stumbling around in the dark thinking they see. Right? You just picture this in like a, if we, if we threw these chairs all around and turned off all the lights, Right? It would be a little chaotic in here. It's chaotic enough that the lights are on, right, after service is over. Imagine that. It would be wild, right? That's where we live. We live in a world full of, of blind people who think they can see. So a couple of things we need to be mindful of. First of all, beware of following the blind, right? But the blind aren't, again, they don't think they're blind. They think they see, and they want to lead other people, Right? 
the world preaches to you, right? Do not follow the blind. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. If you can see, it is foolish to act like a blind person. So Christians, we need to be aware of that. And then we need to be aware of this when it comes to, to loving the blind world, right? It is not love for the blind world to let them live in their false reality and to encourage them on in it, right? This, this gets distorted sometimes. You say, love the world. Well, you have to define that. God's the one who defines what love is. And encouraging people in lies and deception is not love, right? That's hating people, right? That's, that's you'd rather not be uncomfortable while they stumble their way to destruction than you would than to say something that might hurt a relationship. That's not love. Right? To call that love is, I mean, it's just coping, honestly. That's not love. But we also have to understand, too, at the same time, that we can't, by our own contriving, make people see. Right? It's not, if we find the right program and we do the right things and we make things the right way, then we'll make them see. No, it's, it's the Lord alone who makes people see. His spirit is the one who does the work of regeneration. And so what we need to do is look at his word and say, well, how does he, how does he do this? A couple passages, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofted opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to Christ. So, again, we need to understand the nature of the war that we're in, right? The blind people are not our enemy. The blindness is the enemy, right? We want to have the heart of our Savior who came to give sight to the blind. That is meant to be our heart. Even when they are not kind to us, even when they don't treat us the way, it doesn't matter, They are not our enemy, even if they see us as theirs. Right? But what is it, what, what is it that makes war on this deception? What is it that makes war on what shines light into this darkness? What are these weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh, but have this power to destroy strongholds and destroy arguments and all these lofty opinions, all these false truths that speak against the reality of who God is and what he's done. Well, if we look at Romans 10.14, spiritual sight comes through the eyes of faith. And where does faith come from? Romans says this, How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes by hearing. Right? When people are locked in this blindness and this world of lies... How do they see the reality? By the church bearing witness to who God truly is, what he truly says, right? They're in the dark. They can't see anything, so what do they need? We have to talk them onto it. We have to talk them onto who the, who the true God really is, what he has actually said, what is actually good for them, what is actually bad for them. Right, we... When the church faithfully bears witness to God's law and gospel, what he requires and what he has done, we give the world the reality that their blindness cannot see. 
And God works through that to give them faith. God is the one doing it, but he works through the proclamation of his word. Going to blind people. Right, the church is what, we're a little bit like, again, you guys know, all my analogies are sports or military. This one's military. Two choices, right? But we've got, in the military, we have night vision goggles, right? And in the Marine Corps, we really want to own the night. That's one of our things. So we train at night all the time. When you're out in some of these places that are far away from the city, it's, it's really, really dark at night. But then when you flip these things on, you can, you can see. You can see what reality is. And it looks very different than when you have them off. Right? Well, we're in a world of people without NVGs who can't see anything, and we have been given sight. We can see what's going on. We can see where there are ditches and trees and all this stuff. And our job now is to tell them the truth, right? To love them enough to tell them what it really looks like. Now, this passage doesn't stop with the blind men receiving their spiritual sight. It actually happens before. We just get to see the evidence of it, right? It goes on. Right? Jesus, we see, makes the two blind men alive. He gives them spiritual sight. Then they come to Jesus by faith. But then he does the thing that's the actual miracle in the passage, right? He gives them physical sight, right? He opens their eyes. To maybe put it another way, to echo another part of scripture, their faith, he makes their faith sight. And this points us again to our reality, our spiritual reality. Right? Imagine being blind, right? We already agreed, none of us are. We can all see stuff. We're blessed in that way. But imagine being blind. You've never seen anything. What would be the best thing? Right? You're, you're going to get to see. What would be, you know, what would be the greatest thing? You can probably think of all sorts of different stuff, right? Well, I'd argue that the best thing that these two men saw was Jesus. Right? Sure, they saw friends they'd heard for years. They saw all sorts of under wonderful things. But what they really got to see was Jesus. That was the best thing. And that is the best thing for us as well, church. And this is something that I think is, is very easy to lose sight of. And I think probably more so recently, and maybe I'm speaking anecdotally because it has been for me. Um, a lot of times when we talk about our hope in the gospel, right? What, do we, what is our hope because of the work of Jesus Sometimes a lot of what we'll talk about is what, how the gospel makes things better now, right? How, how does the gospel change my marriage, my parenting, the way I think about my work? Right, we think about these things because we're, we're doing life. But sometimes our vision of the gospel hope gets shrunken down to that, where the gospel is just sort of a highly spiritualized sort of therapy, right? And the gospel is all about, you know, how can my life be better right now? Now, it's absolutely true that the gospel changes you, and it changes the way you think about your marriage, and the way you think about your kids, and the way you think about your work, and the way you think about your neighbors. It absolutely does that. But the primary hope of the gospel 
is not about what it fixes for you here, even though it is very helpful. So so we'll put it ours further. I mean, Paul himself said, if we as Christians, if we have hope in this life only, we're above all people most to be pitied, right? So if we shrink gospel hope down to what it can do for us in this life, it's a really, really impoverished hope. So we see that, and so then we look forward, right? Okay, yeah, this life isn't, you know, where everything, but in the life to come, right? In the life to come, when when he's going to wipe away every tear, there's this new heavens and this new earth. No more sorrow, no more loss, all these great things. Much, much better than what happens here, right? Yeah. But a lot of times, even our future hope gets then oriented on, on what? Circumstantial things for us, right? Our circumstances are going to be perfect. That's great. Sign me up. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm, I want that. So that's a much richer place of hope than the other one. But it still falls short. It's still not the heart and the pinnacle of our hope, of what the gospel has secured for us. The pinnacle of what the gospel secured for us is God himself. The circumstances will be fixed. Do you know why they will be fixed? Because we will be in the presence of God. God, we will, Scripture uses this language, we will see him, right? We will see him. The church for a long time used this term, the beatific vision, the the blessed vision, right? And this was held out as, as the ultimate hope of the Christian life. All the other stuff fades in comparison to this. You get to see God. And if we have a right view of God, or like you first hear that, you're like, eh, that's like the best, like seeing something? Like that's, is that going to be boring? Right? If, if that's the, the best. But that's just because we don't, we, our, our view of God is so stunted. Right? We, we can't wrap our heads around the, the gloriousness and the goodness and the, the, the sweetness of of this God and then being able to be in his presence and to know him in this way. The most profound gift of the gospel is not the gifts, it's the giver. The one who gives them gives himself to us. I want to show this to you guys from a few passages. One that I think is, is from Job. And it's right from the middle of Job, right? So the very beginning of Job, it's pretty happy for a few verses. Things get happy right at the end of the The middle is rough, right? This is from the rough part. This is when Job is in the, the midst of his suffering. And in Job 19, he says this. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Brother Job understood this. He lost everything. I mean, in, in ways that none of us have lost everything. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of his pain, what did he go to as his hope? I'm, everything is gone, but I'm going to get to see him. I'm going to get to see him. 
1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's a remarkable statement. We are going to see him as he is. And, and that scene, don't miss this, that, that scene is so powerful that it actually changes us and transforms us. And there's not a lot of things you do this where you, where you look at something and it changes you. That's not normal. That's what not normal things do, right? But that's exactly what John says happens, right? When he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Seeing him is so glorious that it will fundamentally change who we are. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Right? You can study all the time. You can be at the best church with the best teaching. And what we contemplate and come to understand about who God is is just scratching the surface here. It is so rich, so infinite. So Paul describes it as dim and partial. But that dim and partialness is going to fade away and we are going to see him in this this different, fuller way that we cannot even wrap our heads around right now. And notice that this seeing him, there's also this aspect of the fact that in this, it's not just one way, but he also knows us in the midst of this. This is a, this is a communal scene, right? This is even as I have been fully known, right? So in some sense, Paul's using the language to describe that we are going to know God the way that God knows us. Now, it's a little bit of an analogy, right? Because we will never know anything the way God knows it based on his character. We are not him. But he's showing that that's the type of knowledge, the, the sort of completeness we're going to have then compared to the limits we have now. Paul's just trying to draw that out for us. One last short one from Revelation. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is talking about in the new Jerusalem, right? And we will see his face and his presence is going to be the light of this new city that we will indwell. He will not only be the light, he is the, he is the thing we will see all other things by. So even the spiritually blind get to enjoy God's good gifts to a degree. God makes the, the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike in his just general grace kindness. He lets everybody enjoy a lot from him, right? So he does not give his people merely sight to see his gifts, right? But to see him. Westminster Confession of Faith, um, or the shorter catechism, I should say. Famously, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that answer captures this reality so well, right? Like, we, you were designed and made to enjoy God, right? 
and to glorify him in that enjoying of him, right? To, to rightly respond to that joy. And this, this vision that is to come is really bringing that to a head, right? Everything short of that will not satisfy. It's not enough. This is why so many people feel lost and rudderless, because you're trying to find satisfaction in something that can never satisfy you. No created thing can live up to seeing the creator God. That is the thing. It's it. It's reminded of the quote from C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard it before. He wrote in uh, his essay, The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think Lewis is right. When we find our hope in Christ to be unsatisfying, I would suggest that this is the reason why. It's not that he is unsatisfying. It's that our hope has withered and gotten too small and too narrow and too impoverished. We've reduced the gospel down to something that's therapeutic. Right? That helps my circumstances out a little bit. Right? And the Lord is kind. He gives consolation in the midst of these things. He cares for us. He gives us means of grace to sustain us. He does all these sorts of things. But our hope is not in our circumstances here. And our hope is not even in our circumstances in the life to come. The pinnacle of our hope, the chief thing of our hope is that I will see the Lord. I will see my Redeemer in the flesh. That is our hope. And church, the glorious thing about that is that is the hope that holds up to anything. They can take anything they want to away from you. You can lose everything. You can gain everything. It does not matter. They can do nothing to this. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, you will see God. And the amount of joy and satisfaction and bliss and just every good, glorious, positive thing we can possibly imagine is unmatched by anything outside of him. Preaching about this is so hard. You like can't do it. It feels silly to try to, to communicate this. But this is where we need the Lord to give us the eyes of faith. Right? To, to trust that whatever we have to walk through here, that, that the circumstances, but, but that, the thing that he has secured for us because of the work of Christ, is going to be so good and so rich. Just think about it this way, guys. Think about God's gifts to us, right? He gives us freedom from guilt and shame, the end of grief and loss and want. He meets all our physical needs. He gives us resurrection from the dead, and he kills death and gives us eternal life. All of these things are gifts he gives. And if that's how amazing the gifts are, how glorious must be the giver. If that is how marvelous the gifts are, how 
great must be the giver. Valentine's Day was this week. I don't know if you do much for that, but right? If you have a significant other, they might have given you something, right? It's one of the things we do, right? Well, the Lord's, how, what is better, your significant other or the gift they give? There's no comparison, right? The person is so much greater, so much richer. It doesn't matter what they did for you. They are the treasure. And it's no less so with the Lord. His gifts are amazing. But he is so far greater. It's awesome to look at the Mona Lisa. But how much richer to, to know Leonardo da Vinci. And to share a meal and drink with him. And to watch him and to know him. So much better. Anybody can see the Mona Lisa. You see what I'm saying? How glorious must be the one who gives us such things. He outshines all of these things. I love, <laughs> the, the end of this passage is funny. I heard the chuckles as we were reading it, right? Jesus strictly charges them. There's like two words here that like really enforce it. Like, do not say anything. And immediately they go out and tell everyone, right? Um, it's like, come on guys, you had one job. But, but think about it in the lens of this, right? They had been blind, and now they see. And they don't just see, they see Jesus, the one that brought them from death to life, from blindness to sight, the one who will cause them to live forever. They saw him. And now Jesus is like, yeah, don't talk about it. Like, can't happen. They, they can't not talk about it, Right? I was talking to some, this is a few years ago, I was talking to some other guys about evangelism and we're talking about like different techniques and wanting to teach people different ways to do it. And one of the things I said is like, you know what, you know where evangelism comes from? People understanding who God is and what he's done deeply. Because then this happens. If you understand who God is and what he has done for you, you have to talk about it. It just happens. Because it is so good and it is so rich. And that is what happened with these men. They saw the Messiah and they can't shut up. This is why theology is important. This is why getting good teaching is important. Our God is infinite. There is so much to, to ponder and to contemplate and to meditate about who he is. We will never exhaust it. And as we do that, our, 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 the, the image of him that we see by the eyes of faith grows and it becomes more true and more faithful and richer and deeper. We get this little foretaste of this, right? And we see the glory and that spills out of us, right? Evangelism is not used car sales, right? You're not trying to sell lemons to people, right? Evangelism is literally declaring good news, it is proclaiming good news. You can't proclaim good news until you have good news. Good news is the person of God and how that person has worked for us in redemptive history. Just go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. Right? You're cold. You don't need new things deeper. Right? You don't need something else. You don't need to get beyond the gospel. You don't need to get beyond the person of God deeper. That's where the fire is. That's where the life is. That's where the light is.
So church, we are all, every one of us, like John Newton, we were blind, but now we see. We were blind, but now we see. We should be humbled to be recipients of such grace and mercy. And we should long, we should long to see the one who has worked such mercy for us. It should be the number one desire, the passion of our hearts. You guys have heard the old saying about, um, you know, heavenly minded, no earthly good, right? Too heavenly minded, no earthly good? That is such a lie. Your earthly uh, worth does not diminish when you are focused on heaven and the age to come and seeing the Lord. No, that is what actually properly shapes your life here. That's what properly orients you so you can live in this world well. The problem is not Christians who are too heavenly minded. It's that Christians are not heavenly minded enough. Who don't rightly contemplate God enough. Who don't rightly desire him enough. And pursue knowing him enough. That's the deficiency. Not that we don't think about worldly things enough. Get your head out of the clouds. Such a lie. No. If you want to live this life well, contemplate the one you'll see. Long for the one you'll see. Look forward to live well here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this incredible hope. A hope that, yes, does help us now. Yes, creates perfect circumstances for in the future, but, but the fact that we will see you as you are. Lord, please give us, by your spirit, help us to realize what a rich and precious thing that is. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.